Records. Before that was Dr. Buzzard's original Savannah van with Cherche La Femme. Um, to request from my aunt Joyce, thank you for listening. Also, my cousin Derek, who is listening with her. Appreciate you guys tuning in. You better call back next week and give us some money. Because I played a lot of songs for you. Um, Before that, we had another request uh, for Mr. Fingers, uh, also known as Larry Hurd, with the track Can You Feel It, the instrumental uh, from the Kings of House compilation on BBE. Uh, Before that, another request uh, for Daft Punk with Around the World from their classic album Homework on Virgin Records. And before that, we listened to Daniel Wang with Berlin Sunrise Dinocht off of the Berlin Sunrise 12-inch on Ghostly International. Um, so that that brings us to the end of the show. Up next, we have a pre-recorded Living Writers with T. Hetzel. This um, taping of Living Writers features author Jonathan Freeman discussing his latest book, The Tyranny of Email. Uh, We recorded this yesterday, and I haven't been able to get it out of my mind. You will not be able to look at email the same way after hearing this. Uh, It's very interesting, very informative. So please, please stay tuned for uh, Living Writers. After Living Writers, we have the Daily Sports Report at 5.15, followed by Free Speech Radio News at 5.30. After, after which uh, is The Liz with her hour-long Freeform show, followed by Saraman uh, playing Freeform from 7 to 9. Then The Local Music Show. Um, then The Hardcore Show with Aaron. And then No Shirt, No Radio with Bennett. And that brings you into the late-night programming here at WCBN. Um, always fantastic programming here at the station. And we do appreciate your support, and we do appreciate you listening. And please, please, I cannot urge this enough. Please show your support next week during our fundraiser. We're trying to raise money for a new antenna so that we can broadcast farther. We can reach more people with this amazing music and amazing original programming. And your support is vital to making it happen. And uh, I'm sure you'll get more heartfelt pleas as we progress through the week. But let me do mine right now. Okay. All right. With that, um, I'll let Joe Smooth take it out. We will make it to the promised land, people. I believe it. You should believe it, too. Thanks for listening. This is Radio Blackout on the one and only WCBN FM Ann Arbor.
Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. And today I'm so happy on the 9th of March 2010 to have John Freeman sitting here in the studio with me. Welcome, John. Hey, nice to be here. <laughs> and thanks for requesting the cure to kick things off. <laughs> I know. I've always wanted to open up after Robert Smith. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen the cure live? Did you ever? Yeah, several times. I saw them uh, in Sacramento where I grew up. At Cal Expo, um, I saw I saw them at Radio City Music Hall, um, and one other place I forget where. But uh, Radio City was pretty cool because he didn't do the Rockettes thing, but he actually walked out into the crowd with like a 3D laser display, and it was is pretty awesome. Wow. Oh, the cure. <laughs> Can't beat that with a stick. <laughs> um, well, before we go any further, um, I'd just like to introduce you briefly, John. Um, you're, you're in town visiting Ann Arbor to wearing a couple of hats. Um, you've got um, the book, The Tyranny of Email, The 4,000-Year Journey to Your Inbox. Um, this was out with Scribner last year, right, um, in October. And you're also here talking about Granta. Uh, congratulations on on uh, being at the helm of of that great great magazine journal. Oh, thank you. No, it's it's a it's a lot of fun. Um, I love what the magazine is about, and I love its history and the writers we've published. And it's just really fun to be able to pick themes and and do new things with it. Yes. Okay. And we'll get back to Granta. We'll get back to that part. Um, but first, your short bio here. John Freeman is an award-winning writer and book critic who has written for numerous publications, including the New York Times Book Review, the Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, and The Wall Street Journal. Freeman won the 2007 James Patterson Page-Turner Award. He was recently named editor of Granta. He lives in New York City and London. The London part now, for obvious reasons, with the Granta, because that's where the main office is, isn't it? That's right. They're in West London, um, and it was for a long time a student literary publication of Cambridge University. And like um, you're, when you say that, you mean like 1887? Was it? Yeah. <laughs> and for for a long time, for almost about 100 years, and then two Americans came over and brought it back to life as it was going like out of print. Like 1979. Around, yeah. So we we celebrated our 30th year since the relaunch then. Um, and they've moved to London about 10 years ago, and, and that's why I'm there, yeah. It's, I think back like a while ago, like in, I think it was 92, I tried to find the Granta office, and, and I couldn't find it then. But it was before, um, it was before like, the computers, <laughs> all these like devices that now the research would be, I had an address, yeah, but you, was you, lost. <laughs> you can find us on Google Maps, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, you can no see problem. some of my coworkers outside smoking. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who's working hard? <laughs> uh, so, um, but but so so, um, but the tyranny of email. Uh, this this book of yours, John. Um, I love how it's it's very uh, you know expansive. The four thousand year history. How <laughs> how did you get a handle on this book? And can you tell us a little bit about it? And yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I obviously didn't set out to write uh, a, a capsule history of communication. Um, but, uh, oh, why not? <laughs> yeah, it just you know starts with sign language and you know uh, cave drawings, and it is oh yeah. Now we're speaking. Um, the th the the thing which prompted me to write it was uh, you know I, I for ten years I worked as a book critic, and um, at one point I was getting two or three hundred emails a day, and it just was getting in the way of not just um, my day to day life, which was spent primarily reading, um, but it 
I tried to keep up with it. I stayed up late at night. I woke up early in the morning, um, tried to respond to every email. And I just, I, I kind of drove myself crazy. And I felt like, surely someone has said something about this. And I went to that self-help section you have at your bookstore. And it's like, <laughs> email for dummies. Um, get control of your email. And, and, you know, I swear there was probably even a Tony Robbins book about email. Um, you know, like, exercise your email rights. Uh, but <laughs> there was nothing that's, that sort of looked at email from a larger critical perspective, which is like, we have gone from communicating face-to-face or over the telephone or by mail to primarily doing this over the computer, um, sitting at our desks all day and sending quite a huge volume of it. And how is it changing us? So Even I, if people are at desks just a, a couple of feet away from you. I know. I'm actually emailing you right now, <laughs> and I'm really angry you haven't replied. <laughs> but it's, it's that kind of absurdity. I thought, oh God, someone's got to say something. And, and so I didn't want to write just basically a rant um, because, you know, and, you know, those types of things are really for the people who already agree with them. And I just thought the one thing that email robs us of um, is a sense of context, a sense of emotional context, of, of intellectual context, of political context. Surely by the way it breaks up our day and our time frame and our sense of attention – so um, I thought, okay, well, how have we communicated in the written word over time? And that's how I ended up going back 4,000 years in a time machine <laughs> called a library. <laughs> They're all over the place. Um, and I, you know, I found that the, the, the oldest um, uh, love poem in the world was written you know, uh, 4,000 years B.C. Um, and it sits in a museum of the ancient Orient in Istanbul um, behind a piece of glass. And it's about the size of a piece of toast. And it's got these little uniform marks on it that looked like bird tracks and it's it's quite beautiful and, and the resilience of that object time um, compared to say a digital file which erodes very quickly and is corrupted um, spoke to me in, in a way and I thought you know god we're really losing something a sense of context and texture and meaning and it's that lasting quality that's that has it in the museum but also what it took to make it like yeah. the quality of what the time it took to uh, carve it into this you know the wet clay and you know probably memorize the poem so that you know you, you obviously this there's no free verse there was no allen ginsburg of of of, of, of sumerian times you had to be ready for yeah. this and yeah. it had to be kind of short yeah and then you know to have to sit there wait fire it or dry it in the sun and then have someone deliver it across town and it just seemed to me the difference between that and say like a tweet um was massive um, and that there was there was something significant which was being lost there. And as a, a well, it's interesting because you're you're you've got a passion for books. You're you're a lover of books, and and the books as artifacts themselves, mm. um, and magazines or journals, the print medium, and uh, and it's it seems like you started out like your your young life. You were a newspaper boy in Sacramento, mm. um, and so you've always been involved and then you built this I think you took an amazing I was thinking about it this risk to build um, to be a freelance critic um, what was that like to make that decision where you could because at the end you were one of the most um, widely read and you, you were populating like over 200 English language uh, periodicals right? It was sort of like a virus Around the- <laughs> <laughs> I was talking about this email <laughs> No, no, and um, you know, I, I loved the printed word, and I loved newspapers, and I loved the, the sensuality of encountering it on a page. And to me, reading online or on a screen, as much as I do it for my job and do it for convenience, sometimes um, it's it's sort of devoid of the sensuality of contact. 
And um, I think I can say this on, on your radio station. I, I always felt like the difference between reading on the page and in print and reading um, online or on a screen is sort of the difference between having sex with a person and having sex with an object. Um, if you're alone, you might choose the latter because you have to or because it works. But most people would choose the former. It's messier, but it, there's a lot. The, the, the whole point of the, of the exercise is that sense of contact and collision. And I always felt like with books and with text and with literature, um, as much as we like to think the way they're packaged and presented and designed doesn't matter, they do, it does matter. And the fact that you can hold a book matters. And the fact that you sort of, it feels like a physical object. And that when you look at it on the shelf, it's almost like seeing the contours of a new form of knowledge that's inside of you. There's something not um, erotic about that, but there's something deeply sensual and important about it. And I feel like that's missing if we all go to primarily reading in a, in a virtual way. Yeah, especially the Kindle or something. Like it... Well, I see, I, I travel a lot because I'm, I'm going back and forth between the U.S. and England for work, and I'm seeing more and more Kindles on planes, and I, I can relate to that because I often travel with a big bag of books and right. arrive with a big backache. And, you know, there, there are times when, you know, that really is more convenient. Um, and from a publishing perspective, if you're publishing onto a digital platform, you don't have to ship books to a distributor. They don't have to wait there. They don't have to get shipped to a bookstore. They don't have to sell or not sell, get shipped back, go to the books, to bookstore warehouse, maybe get shipped back to the bookstore and then come back and maybe get pulped. I mean, it's, it's hugely inefficient process. Right, and all the, and the carbon uh, imprint or footprint, right, yeah, is, is massive. and It's huge. So there's, there's good reasons to read uh, on, on screens, but... Um, I, I hope in the future that we we don't completely abandon print because there are some wonderful things about it. Yeah, this quality that's almost indefinable, like making us more human, or what it is to have that collision or connection that mm. you're talking about. Well, there's speed associated with technology, I think, um, and you know this this works with email and it works with reading, where you know you receive an email and it comes and you you feel like you should respond immediately, and if not immediately, then within the same day. And if or you there's great guilt yes. too. I know you, you forget about it, it gets buried in your inbox, and you're just sort of sitting on a landmine. And when we were dealing with voicemail and telephone, or even with um, letters, uh, both of those things, you know, a telephone call could be urgent, but it, you could also leave a voicemail, hear back two days later, and it wasn't a massive inconvenience. And the same thing with a letter. If you send a letter, the, the whole register of a letter, the tone of it, um, is about thoughtfulness and about sort of waiting for reply. I mean, Granted, this isn't counting when American Express writes to you and says, Dear Mr. So-and-so, you know, we are waiting to hear from you about your last bill. Right, and it's on pink stationery. Yeah, I know. I've never gotten one of those. Do they really come on, on colored stationery? Y- yes. Well, And once. it's not because they love you. No. It's, and it's not sprayed with some sort of perfume. Like, <laughs> ain't Valentine's Day. <laughs> but, but it sounds like you could be an ambassador for this and, and have been, actually, as your role as the president of the, the National Critics Book Circle. Mm. Um, well, I, when, I, when I was doing, when I was involved with the National Book Critics Circle, I, there was a period, a sort of turning, a tipping point, if you will, among newspaper book sections. And this is right as newspapers were you know, realizing they had a very significant presence on the web. And they were also looking at section-by-section section cutbacks and trying to see how sections could justify themselves. And if you look at newspapers that way economically, they never make sense. 
Um, it's, it's, it's the combination of all these different sections which make a newspaper worth holding. Even if you decide not to read it, you kind of like to see sections which are there so you can sort of say to yourself, ha, I don't need to look at the gardening or the it's sports. It's true. You can cast it aside a little yeah. bit in preference for what you like. And... But if those sections aren't there, then you're really simply looking at only what's there. And there was, there was cutbacks. There used to be book editors in every almost major city, um, and often there was a book critic. And slowly the book critics were let go. And then the book editors were let go, and then the sections were either demolished or turned into sort of standing sections, which were populated with wire content coming out of New York from the AP Wire Service or the New York Times or from Washington, from the Washington Post. And my my feeling on that was, you know, books are kind of the the back door to culture for a newspaper. It's a way to broaden things out besides outside of the present moment. And if you take that out, you know, you take out a major kind of significant part of the newspaper part of the soul uh, yeah that's that was my feeling um so yeah we, we went around and had protests and you know wrote letters and um some of it helped and then in other cases it it simply delayed i think what was an inevitable thing that was happening but simply having the conversation i felt like was important right and i, and I guess we have to keep having it hmm and and there will be a way to I don't know to because there are communities that are are buying locally and it's part of it seems like it's it's all hinged together mm. this this well I, I mean that's what in some ways books are sort of cultural memory and if you take books out of the, the equation of a newspaper you're sort of you're taking outside or you're putting away a, a big section of of cultural memory and you know I, I think it's very easy to to forget what was once there and so I think. Um, people need to remember that they used to have these book sections and sort of ask their newspapers or lobby them or, or create their own sort of standalone uh, book reviews if they really want to read about books in a serious way because otherwise um, the market won't take care of you. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back. And could we hear a piece from your book, The Tyranny of Email, John? Yeah. Okay, today on Living Writers, John Freeman, his book, The Tyranny of Email. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Brian Delaney in the engineering chair. We'll be right back. Got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today John Freeman is here in the studio. 
his book, The Tyranny of Email. Uh, I love that it it is like it, it's a it's a good looking book too, John. How it looks? Did you did you help design it with the the red? Or the red almost screams some sort of danger though. Too. I know, I know. I think that was the idea. Is like. Um, it looks kind of angry and red, yeah. sort of inflamed. <laughs> and and do you end it with because um do you end it with a manifesto of sorts, like a way to a way out for well, us to end the tyranny? Well, that's the thing is I didn't feel like I could write this without um, having some kind of recommendation because otherwise it'd be like and you have a problem and uh, it's all your problem. Exactly. Goodbye. Yeah. The end. <laughs> so, so yeah, suffer alone, suffer alone in front of your computer. I've solved Blackberry. it. I'm unplugged yeah. myself. Um, no, I've um, I, I, there's a a manifesto for a slow communication movement, um, which it, it basically is just sort of uh, trying to acknowledge that speed is not the most important value of of human life. Um, and then I have sort of five or six, seven, maybe ten steps, um, you know, practical things. So, so yeah, uh, trying to trying to start a conversation. Really, because I think you know. Person to person, you can come up with a lot of good ideas, and obviously, I don't have all the the answers to the problem. Um, but I felt like identifying the problem was important. When you, what was the reception to this book? Like, what sort of feedback did you um, get I, in in October and and to now? So far, it's been really nice. I mean, the uh, I've I've received a lot of handwritten letters. Um, I know, and I've heard from lots of people I, I had lost touch with. Um, you know, weirdly, I, I did a small book tour, um, and I went to cities, and I used Facebook, which I'm on, um, partly as research for my book, mostly for research for my book, um, but now I've, I haven't figured out a way to unplug from it. Um, but I found that, you know, the people that I've stayed closest with are the people that I've connected with on Facebook and then met up with on in the real world. Um, and it's the people who are just Facebook friends who kind of remain slightly opaque and, and out there. Um, and that's the same um, that same idea you're bringing to Granta as as a not only as a an artifact like a literary journal, but mm-hmm. as a community of people. You have a presence on the web, yet you also make a point of having events and gatherings as well. well. Yeah, I think that's really important because um, in some ways magazines are community building exercises. It's sort of signing on to sort of see what comes next in a, in a group of writers and. I think a lot of people, if you're a serious reader, you kind of identify with your taste. And um, it's a great way to to meet other people. But most importantly, when you read something that really moves you, um, that really kind of destroys you or changes the way you think or upsets you, the most natural instinct and the most common one is to want to talk about it. Not necessarily as a book club, but sort of to get together. And the types of pieces we publish were reportage and travelogue and poems and, and fiction that usually revolves in some degree around memory and the sort of the way that history refracts in personal life, um, the impact of wars on civilizations, um, really serious stuff. I mean, it's not unhumorous, but it it it, it begs a conversation. It, I want people to read it and to want to do something. Not that it's, you know, activist literature, but that it, it, the most important thing um, to, to do is to make people think and then after that to make them want to change something. And it's and I don't think it like activist literature. I mean, I think if anything is like is deeply itself, that's a like that's a level of authenticity that just makes it. It has to be active, mm-hmm. not not in a way where it's going to go and um, I don't know they, like the 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 negative connotation. Like I think the reason why you were saying not that it's activist literature or that it's it's. Um, 
the next? Well, I uh, think the, the difference is, you know, there's a type of writing which, which is sort of constructed through which, to that constructed in a way that it, it's it's trying to make you do something, and that's not what no. the pieces we publish yeah. do. But you know, for example, in our new issue, the one that's out right now, it seemed to work, and we have a great piece by Aminata Forna about the only veterinarian in Sierra Leone, um, and she went back and spent some time with this guy who literally is the only um, qualified veterinarian in the entire country, and he's trying to vaccinate animals, he's trying to neuter dogs, he's trying to help um, you know dogs get off the streets, and it's a really profound essay about the, the way that a country which was devastated by s- civil war found its humanity in the way it treats dogs, and the story of this one man who is trying to help the country do that. It's really powerful. And after reading it, um, I could see how you might want to donate to him or you know, pay more attention to animal rights in, in, in Africa. Um, and it's, it's a really, it's, to me, it's sort of a quintessential grant of peace because it's about encountering a, a different place. It's about the way that history changes you know, everyday life. It's beautifully written, and um, it's only Aminata could have written it. And that's it. That's what makes it, isn't it? Like mm. it's only from that one writer, that one writer's mind and a voice and scene. Yeah, it's a tricky <laughs> thing because you trying to, you know, the the working between submissions and commissions. You know, submissions are 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 often, you know, something that someone really wants to get published or they really really believe in. Um, but with commissions, it's a tricky thing because you have to try to figure out what someone really wants to write, um, not what they think you want to publish. Or what they have to write. So and how do you manage that? Are you are you the instigator for these? Like when you're commissioning, it would seem that the idea or the germ of the mm-hmm. idea would come from you, John? It's a, it's a mixture. I mean, you know, with, with Aminata's case, she came into our office in London, and I really admired her fiction and, and her reporting. And she told me two stories. And the first story was about the, the dogs and this veterinarian. And I thought, you have to write that. And we didn't have a theme for it. We didn't know where it was going to fit, but I just thought, you have to write that piece. Um, that's really the piece that you were meant to write. And so then, at that moment, you're commissioning it for Granta. Yeah. There's like a, a promise between you and the writer. Yeah. Okay. And then in other cases, you know, the same same issue, which is, um, we got a story uh, by Brad Watson called Vacuum, and it's about um, a mother with three sons, and at the beginning of the story, she throws her hands up in the air and says, that's it. I'm overwhelmed. You guys are terrible sons. I'm not going to be your mother for a while now. And she goes into her room and slams the door and and starts drinking and smoking cigarettes. And the little boys spend the rest of the story wandering around this town looking for people to take over her role or help her. And they go through a series of mother figures. And it's it's really funny and kind of dark and sweet and just, you know, it has that kind of Flannery O'Connor mystery to it that you feel, how, how did a human hand make this? It feels very human, but also very remote at the same time. It's a gorgeous story, and and I've never read anything like it. And I think Brad Watson is the only person who could have written that story. So it's, and, and it's fun. And it's interesting, someone like you for 10 years that has just been reading, just the amount that you've been reading, and then not only um, that, but thinking about considering, because then you make something, you write something about it yourself, um, and, and putting it out into the public sphere. It's it's interesting to hear you talk about it, because you have just all this time that you've logged in being in this world and thinking. It, it makes, it's, yeah. Well, I, I think with reviewing, it's interesting, because you, you, you're basically the Monday morning quarterback in a book. 
And um, and that's the reason why I wanted to get a little bit out of reviewing towards the end of it, is I thought it's one thing to read a book and have a considerate response and try to take the book on its own terms and write something creative that's fun to read, but somehow also considers the book and, and weighs its merits. And that's, and and bottom line also, if someone reads it on the news in the newspaper on Sunday while they're eating their cornflakes, knows whether they should buy the book or not. Um, and to you know, dealing with a live human being who has an idea but hasn't you know hasn't really begun and, and needs sort of a little bit of a nudge and then maybe some guidance along the way. And it, to me, the latter is really exciting right now because I love writers. I love you know the way that their minds work and the way they're obsessive and the ways what they make and the the, the, the sort of the real courage it takes to do what they do, um, and it's fun to, ha- to to have a very small role in making that happen. And I think the larger role is is, is really in sort of taking twenty one or twenty five people like that and putting them in a single issue, um, which is why I I really like working with Granta because we have themes for every issue. So you know, here's our our new theme is sex. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just, what a vi- oh, this is when we need a visual. It's a coin purse that's open and it's pink. Um, yeah, it's a very evocative <laughs> image. <laughs> and, and it's from the top. Yep. Um, yeah. Everybody, I, can you picture that out there? Um, <laughs> anyway, it could be lots of different things. <laughs> it, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> but uh, it, you know, the, the the fun thing is getting those writers together and um, the mixture of seeing what comes in off the transom in a way, what comes in off submissions, and then sort of zeroing in with on one person when you think, okay, this person really could write this piece. Right. So, you know, and, and the that sec- would be really fun. Oh, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's great. It's the, it's the best, like, it's sort of like a, a, a Calvino esque version of a bookstore where you can not only find the books that were already written, but the books that you wish were written. Um, and that's what I love about it. So, you know, in this sex issue, uh, there's a piece. Yeah, by... were you commissioning? That gets a little. Yeah, no, I know. It, it's, <laughs> it's sort of strange because it's tricky business there. Well, in, the, in the last three months, it's, in the office, it's been the land of bad puns. Sitting there making all these sex jokes, and being like, "Okay, this is this is in the context of our sex issue," and then you have to say something really kind of vivid and lurid. Uh, but you know, it, the, the thing about sex is it's so it, uh, it's become, or we think of it as something so visual because of the prevalence of pornography and the way that sexual imagery is often used to sell things. Marketing, right. Um, but in fact, the way we experience sex so often mm. um, is internal. Uh, you know, you have a, 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 a sexual experience and you are experiencing it very physically inside of yourself. You're more aware of your own contours during sex than perhaps anything else. Uh, the same, But the same thing could be said for work. Um, and that's why we're trying to go for see, these sort of themes um and also are you, you're trying to draw a younger audience for granta as well, well that's part of your mission as the the new and i said you were going to read and then we start talking about no, all these, no, these the, things the, I, um, I have my place marked don't okay, worry. okay 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 <laughs> um you know yeah uh, grant has been around for you know obviously a long time and 30 years in this incarnation and uh in the very early years we got associated with certain groups of writers um, there was an issue called Dirty Realism that the first editor, Bill Buford, put together, which published the work by uh, Richard Ford and Raymond Carver and Richard Russo and Jane Ann Phillips and Louise Erdrich and all these writers who have won Pulitzers and who are now um, considered, and rightly so, great American novelists, but at that point weren't being well published in England. Um, and, you know, the people who grew up with those writers, and this happens inevitably, it, you 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 
when you're a young reader and you're first going to the bookstore and you're buying hardbacks for the first time or you're paying attention to book reviews, the writers you buy or you know read and read closely at that age um, are very close to you. Um, so uh, I think a certain percentage of our readers, the people who associated with... And the know, beats were that for you. Yeah, for me. Even they? though, you know, after a certain point, they, you're, the, the people that you go to are sort of, you know, they can be anywhere. Um, but, you know, the, those are, those readers, are, I think, are the same age as those writers now. So mm. a, a lot of granted readers are, are in their 50s and 60s. Um, but we're still a very <laughs> hip, young literary magazine in many senses. Um, I'm 35, so... If I can't get someone my age to read this, I should stop. <laughs> <laughs> a red, a red flag of sorts. Um, is it for Grant? Grant's audience is is global. That's the mission of it, isn't well, it? Or is it more? Because what you just said then was interesting. Because it almost seemed like trying to get like America, more American writers into like and like a, a British public's reading, you know, their hands or. But what was interesting, and I know it was a long time ago, and, and mm. you weren't there yet for a long time. Like in '92, the book, like the the um, the newspaper shop, you know, the the place where you'd go in and buy the candy and the newspapers and magazines, they hadn't, they were, they didn't carry it. Mm. And I was like, what? <laughs> Grant, because I thought, you know, I didn't know it had been resuscitated by Americans. Yeah. And and so I just thought, well, surely everyone in London is reading Granta. And that's why, since I was in Florida, I thought I was so cool to have found it. <laughs> and then I thought, what? Where, where, these people, where, well, where England, is it? <laughs> England doesn't have a magazine culture. They have a newspaper culture. Mm. And so, you know, there's a few liter- uh, magazines which are general interest, which sometimes publish short stories. But writers who would write a short story or write about books, do it for the newspapers, which means Saturday and Sunday is a really good day in London because you can go to these newsstands, buy newspapers, and there's a short story by Ian McEwen or there's A.S. Byatt writing about you know fairy tales or there's Hilary Mantel writing on something or uh, A.L. Alvarez or you know Carol Phillips. I mean, it's a really, it's a great thing and newspapers are cheap and it's, it's fun. Um, but they don't have The New Yorker. Um, and you know, Grant is the closest thing to that even though we're a quarterly uh, and so for a while in, in America, even though Grants was being run by Americans and was publishing more Americans than more Brits, um, it was still kind of like the Morrissey CDs, which were imports, you know. And so I think there was a bit of that cool hip import factor for a while. Um, but then it really did take off because the, it, it did something which wasn't being done at that time, which was putting um, writers together under a theme and that was really exciting. Um, and now I think... As you know, being here at, at Michigan, there are lots and lots of writers who are getting their MFAs and becoming writers, and there are uh, there is a journal for every writer. I mean, America has a has a wonderful and incredibly encouraging and a very optimistic number of literary journals out there. I mean, everything from the Kenyan Review to the Paris Review to McSweeney's to the Believer, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know. That's a good thing for us because I think uh, the more that people read journals and realize that the best way to encounter new literature is really to see it when it's just coming out of a writer's hands, um, the, be- the better it is for, for Granta. And take a look at its neighbors, too, yeah. while you're at it, right? We'll take a short break. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, John Freeman. We'll be right back.
whatever you really and we are back. <laughs> Welcome back to Living Writers. This time, um, I'm actually going to stop asking questions of John Freeman. And and let's hear something from the book, shall we, John? The Tyranny of Email. All right. Uh, this is from a section of the book called uh, Writing Our Way into Existence. Um, this seems I, very serious. Yes, it's, it's very deep. You have to put on your, your bifocals to listen to this. Um no, really what I'm getting at here is just basically the fact that um, by working over email and spending as, as much time on it as we do, we're all becoming writers. Yes. So, Which is a great thing to say in a composition class, too. Like, writing is important, you well, know, for that and, introductory to college writing course, right? Yeah, but now we're all doing it all <laughs> the time. So what does it mean that you can have as many addresses on the Internet as you like for free? That they will become an integral part of your daily life? One could argue that this isn't an entirely new development. Anonymous letters were an issue in the past, after all, and early writers frequently wrote under a pseudonym, as do some modern writers. Benjamin Franklin made his literary debut by slipping articles under his newspaper publishing brother's door in the name of Silence Duguid. Later on in life, he published Poor Richard's Almanac under the name Richard Saunders. C.S. Lewis published poems under the name Clive Hamilton to protect his reputation as an Oxford don. And 17th-century Japanese poet Matsuo Kanisku used 15, 15 different haiga, or pen names, before he settled simply on basho, which was the name of a banana plant. Marianne Evans used a male pen name because she wanted her work to be treated seriously. We know her simply as George Eliot. It's not an accident that all these examples come from writers. Until the end of the 20th century, they were the only people with the ability to put their thoughts into writing and have them distributed to a large and ready audience. One could write a letter to the newspaper and hope the editors printed it, bang away at a novel and send it off to a publisher and wait by the mailbox for a reply. But the vast majority of people wrote to communicate person to person, via letters and postcards and occasionally by telegram. Now we can write for the world, or we can write to a friend. If both are posted on the web in the form of a blog, perhaps the easiest way to publish ever created, it will be up to netizens' search habits as to whether it is e either is read. Similarly, the forwardability of email means that these intentions are easily blurred. An email to a friend may, if clever or embarrassing enough, be read by hundreds of thousands of people. An email to a large group may not be read by any of them. So I, I, one thing I found really fascinating about email is, um, you know, by, by virtue of how much of it comes in, and the average office worker uh, last year sent and received 200 email messages a day and spent 42% of their day doing it. Um, it means that you have to reply quickly, um, and that you also read what you are replying to very swiftly. Um, so we're working in a medium which makes it harder and harder to read um, and makes it more and more essential to write. Um, or if you will, it makes it harder and harder to read and harder, sorry, harder to and hard, understand what you're reading. To understand really, what you're right? reading. Because you're yeah. almost skimming it without even knowing you well, are, right? Like, what are the action items hmm. that are coming at me that I must respond to? Yeah, I'm having a really stressful time in this conversation, for example, because there's no action items. <laughs> <laughs> you're at the helm <laughs> of your own action item, John. Yes. <laughs> but it's, it's, I find it quite troubling because I think reading is one of the great engines of empathy. Um, and not just reading books, but reading newspapers and. Um, our ability to ha to take ourselves out of ourselves is very essential, um, and that's what's so liberating, what's what's so magical about fiction, um, because you're really putting yourself into someone else's shoes. And if and that the imagination is f fired up, yeah, 
No, it's it's true, and and you, it allows you to conceive of other points of view. Um, and if if we're working in an environment which is making that harder and harder to do, it means that um, in some ways it's harder and harder to get along. And it's not surprising that there's so many flame ups and blowouts over email um, because we're working in a medium that that sort of teaches us to talk and not to listen. So, um, you know, that's why uh, when I wrote this book, I I didn't want to yell at people even though my my cover is quite red and angry um I, I felt like it was better to write in a kind of register that suggested that this is me thinking about this this is not me preaching about it um well because it, it well that also seems like more your natural tendency too although there's like there's a bit of the evangelist in you as well mm. but but praise jesus <laughs> i mean i mean for books <laughs> Not the PTL as much as the the uh, book part of that, but um. well, I, I I I just I really believe in books. I believe in the power of literature to change your life and to change other people's life. And I, I believe it's literature is one of the most uh, perfect vessels for human experience, for for the mysteries and contradictions and the the, the way it gouges you, for 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 putting it into something. Um, and allowing you to sort of make sense of it, either as a writer or as a reader who connects with someone else's experience. And I, I, I really do worry about a world where so much is appealing to the eye, um, where we're working in an environment where we're trying to keep up with machines, machines that were never really meant to supplant us, machines which were meant to be kind of a prosthetic extension of our, our deepest desires, which is to connect with one another. And, you know, we're sitting here talking face to face, and it's, it's wonderful that you you and I have eye contact and body language and there are all these different vectors of, 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 of nuance and meaning between how we're relating um, and when we strip that down to an email um, lo- a lot is lost and so the point and of misunderstood my, and yeah yes. and and you know a huge percentage of emails are misunderstood so what I'm saying in my book is is sort of think about the long history of where we how we got here see what you know what what's being lost and also Think about the fact that you can still actually write a letter. The post, you know, you might get yelled at if you go to the post office without the right forms. Um, but you can still mail letters. You can still mail postcards. You can, you know, there's there is a telegram agency which allows you to send telegrams for like ten bucks. Now. Oh, those are still around. Yes, <laughs> yeah, there's, but it's very hard to find. You can only get it on the internet, which is kind of ironic. Um, <laughs> you can, the telephone still works. I mean, I always find it so strange that. If you can't get people on email, you pick you call them on the phone and they pick up immediately because they don't get any more phone calls. You know, and you go into the offices now of any kind of comp- company, um, and unless it's like the trading floor of a finance company, it's quiet. You know, it's really quiet because oh, the phones aren't ringing and they're yeah. you just hear the the keyboards. The clicky click, yeah. And uh, you know, I, again, I'm I'm, I'm going to sound like some sort of fetishist of, <laughs> of objects, but like you know, you think about a computer which you spend more time with than your spouse if you work in a white-collar work environment. Um, and it's made of plastic, stuff that takes forever to you know, be digested by the earth. Um, there's, there's no skin. There's nothing, there's nothing about it which is natural. It comes from, I mean, maybe buried in the fiberboards. There's, there's some, like, gold which has been mined out of someplace, hopefully not for, you know, blood money. But, you know, all these things, um, the, the, the way that we spend time with machines changes us. And the way that we sit and stare at a screen all day long, and you know, it changes us. And that's sort of one of the things I'm trying to say about email is it, it, one of the ways it changes us is it convinces us that it is the only or the primary or the best or the fastest and the most efficient way to communicate. 
And that's obviously not the case if you if you ever have had any kind of email blow up. Yeah. But and why are we so willing to be convinced of it though? Cuz it feels almost as if there isn't a mm. way out of it. And maybe by the end of the tyranny of email, the book when you you get to those those maybe those 10 mm. moments um, and because several times during the conversation, you also referenced like unplugged from it or you couldn't unplug from Facebook. So there's mm. this way of like uh, just stopping it or cutting off from it. It's very difficult. I mean, I, I can't do it. Um, with Not my with job. your job. Yeah. I mean, unless someone wanted to shine their short story to me, you know, <laughs> it's like I have to get things sent somehow. And, and, and email is really the most efficient way to do it. Um, but I use the word tyranny in the title, not be out of you know some sort of hyperbolic ev- ev- evangelism about you know how bad email is for you, but simply because I, I feel like the definition of tyranny is that it is it changes the way you live in a way that makes you feel like this is the you're, only way, and you're opting into it. Yeah. It's something that you want as well, the only way. Well, I mean, I don't think tyranny is like that. I mean, if you're if you're tyrannized by a government. You're not necessarily opting into it, especially if it's not one that you voted for. Right. Um, But, you know, this this is not – it it feels like a a co-opted tyranny in a way. Like we're sort of all moving in the same direction. And the reason why – Well, if you want a job, you have to have an email address. Yeah, you can't say, um, here's my P.O. box. You sound a little bit like a Unabomber. Um, You know, so you have to have it uh, in many cases. The question is how do you use it? And, you know, the – the way that you use it has a large impact on other people. So if you don't send an email, which is one of my number one recommendation at the end of the book, someone else doesn't get an email. And if they don't get an email, they don't have to reply to your email. You don't have to reply to their reply, and they don't have to reply to your reply to their reply. It doesn't have to go that sort of primrose path down to thanks, which is where everything apparently has to end. Um, and that, that, that creates a huge thing, um, huge sort of rolling impact because um, – there's lots of emails that aren't sent and you have more time and maybe what you were going to send to them was like, Hey, it's pretty awesome here in Michigan today. It's 50 degrees. Thumbs up. And like, does your friend really need to know that? Um, or could you write a letter that had that in there along with all these other pieces of information, which would give a sense of you. And maybe if you hand wrote it, there'd be a sense of your personality and it wouldn't have this you know, feeling of it has to be replied to instantly. And so it wouldn't associate their, your friendship with, stress. So, you know, I I just think, you know, if we all slow down a little bit, um, we might live a little bit more mindfully. Yeah. And be able to, because in some ways, I don't know if you feel it, but I feel my mind, my brain skittering sometimes mm. like onto something else. Is that why else? your eyes are moving back and forth really fast? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just reading the teleprompter. No, just, <laughs> this show is completely unscripted. Of course, it should be obvious by now. <laughs> But, but it does. It is agitating. I mean, think about it. Uh, before the computer screen, and we are all reading the newspaper on the computer screen or on our handhelds or something. Um, you know, pr- almost all of the reading that we did was before a, a reflected light. So you know, I'm sitting here and I have this postcard of Grant's sex issue here, and there's an electric light above me, and the light's shining down, bouncing off the purse into my eye, and it's creating that image that's on my retina, probably upside down or something. And that's very different than if this image was on a screen and I was looking at it because it would mean that light was being beamed directly into my eye. And that's a, it, it seems very subtle and academic, but if you read by reflected light or if you read on a screen, you very quickly notice a difference because your eyes get tired mm. and you're, you're receiving something in a different way. 
And I think that's that that also impacts the way we read email and the the way email can be really fatiguing. And um, you know, there's there is something sacred about light. It's the first thing that's created in the Bible. You know, it's throughout the, the Quran. I mean, it's it's in in, in Homer's epic, the section where um, Odysseus goes to a place without light is one of the darkest, most you know, scary parts of of that book. And you know, we are. You know, we interact with the world through light. It's the most impo- one of the most important things around, and yet we're manipulating this one source of light um, and allowing it to present us so much information. This sounds really strange and, and metaphysical in a way, but I, I think it's I it think makes it's really sense. Important. Yeah, and not to think about it too, because we're not since it's in some ways required of us. Not that watching television is required of us or mm. watching a movie on our computer, but... But you have to go to work. You have to go to work. You have to... And you mm. have to be connected in that way. Yeah. And so I, one of the other things I recommend in, in the book is sort of... This sounds really... I, I, I swear I'm, I'm, I'm not like some sort of... Be a revolutionary. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, yeah I do Wait, recommend... But you be, swear you're not an artist guru? Is that what you were going to say? Or, or Amish guru? I, I am an Amish guru. Only on the weekends, though. Um, <laughs> You should see my cart. It's awesome. It's got and, spinners. And your well. Yeah, my well. I, I drink only well water. Um, no, what I was going to say is I'm not um, some sort of office consultant, but I really do think it makes a difference if you change the way your desk is oriented or uh, so that if you have enough room, you don't make your computer directly in front of you um, so that there, there's other things that you can do with your desk. So you can like write things down and not always have to interact in that kind of um, slightly cyborg way with your computer. Um, you know, you that is, I mean, that's, it shouldn't be a new thought, but it sort of is, you know, just hearing you say it. So there are, these are things to, to consider. Well, I just think, you know, we should just consider our relationship with, with technology and how it changes us or could possibly change us. There's a lot of pressure with technology now that so much of our, of our economy is wrapped up in purchasing and developing new forms of technology, which slightly improve upon what's come before it mm-hmm. to think and to feel that um, all technology is good or that um, new technology is good and that old technology is bad. But, you know, it, I walked into your radio station. There's something really wonderful about seeing a huge wall of vinyl. And if anyone's a, a real connoisseur <laughs> of sound, you know, there's like the, there's a huge difference between sound, which is recorded on vinyl, and sound, which is on digital, which you listen to on your iPod. And there's a reason for that because the programming language for um, – Music, which is which has been embedded into all recorded music that's on digital, was begun and programmed around a keyboard. So all the notes were, you know, corresponding to keyboard. But a keyboard is not the only form of making music. Obviously, there's string instruments, there's brass, there's all kinds of sounds and have textures and have have sort of all sorts of auras to them that aren't captured in that one programming language. And so now we're all listening on our iPods to sound which is recorded digitally, which sucks, you know. And and and, you, and we we did that willingly because it was sold to us as portable and efficient and nifty. And you know it's great to have sound in your ears, but it's also great if you sit in a room with a, you know a record on the on the turntable and you realize, wow, this is what it this is what it really should sound like. And completely unsolicited, um, John Freeman has given us a testimonial to why freeform radio should should never die. And so WCBN must uh, keep carrying forward this, <laughs> their, their, their turntables and, and this, this banner of freeform. We're going to take a short break. Um, 
today, John Freeman, his book, The Tyranny of Email. I'm T. Hetzel. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Freeform Radio Rules will be back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, John Freeman is here on Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Um, John, thanks so much for coming and doing the show on your whirlwind tour of Ann Arbor. <laughs> oh, it's really fun, though. I mean, I, I, I had a, a college radio station. at I went to school in Swarthmore. Um, and I just love the fact that you could have a huge range of things from alt music programming to classical to sort of people reading their own inspired or maybe not so inspired beat poetry um you know it, close to your hip-hop. heart i know i, I love I, I really love the beats uh and i feel like they did something to american lit you know when it was threatening to become too stodgy and too criticism laden and and too sort of um static they sort of opened up the breadth of it and and the breath really you know in, in the sort of long lines of allen ginsburg's poems and i think you know they they are to the 20th century what Whitman was to the 19th. Um, and I, I, one of the things I really love about working at Granta is I feel like, um, you know, England and America are always in this sort of constant dialogue uh, in a way about what what is good and what isn't and, and how do you tell a story. And, you know, th- things don't necessarily translate, um, but they, they can be imported. And, you know, in our sex issue, the one that's coming up, we have a poem by C.K. Williams, great poem about a, a, the daughter of a clown at a at a circus that he had a brief affair with and he writes in these really long kind of really 
intense um, lines. And so you is, is it is it a prose poem when you look it, at it? It almost John, looks like a prose it? poem, okay. and you don't see that in England. Uh, um, uh, a huge percentage, it seems to me, of what I read of English poetry has a very skinny, almost James Schuyler-like um, line, usually about an object, um, not overly confessional. Um, and I think you know that poetry is wonderful for what it is, and American poetry is wonderful for its great variety. But you put the two of them together and next to each other, and I think something kind of exciting happens. And and the first book you bought was a book of poems. Did oh I, yeah, I mean, is that true? That's what something I read about you. But oh, it's just a dirty rumor. <laughs> <laughs> he bought a book of poems, <laughs> and it was on the web. It was on the web. <laughs> Everyone forwarded it along. <laughs> Everyone, yeah. No, I, I'm trying to think about what the first the first book I bought was. Um, I mean, I can remember specific books because you know my. my my uh, for a while I wanted to be a doctor when I was growing up, and I candy striped at um, Kaiser Permanente where my mom was working at the time, and um, my dad wanted to sort of make sure I was thinking about becoming a doctor all the time. So we went into Tower Records, which sadly is um, no longer, um, but they had a bookstore, and I bought the doctor stories of William Carlos Williams, uh, which are great. And and he was a doctor in addition to being a poet. Um, and there are all these stories that were probably autobiographical. Your dad's first mistake. <laughs> yes, I know. And then he set me off on this this great this great lucrative career in <laughs> in writing. But no, he, uh, it was it, it's strange because my dad was not a reader. Um, he read the newspaper in its entirety, like down to the ads and the the box scores and the obituaries. And he, so he's full of facts, and he has a great sort of you know broad understanding of the world. Um, but he doesn't read read books so much, and he definitely doesn't read novels. So it was just sort of strange, my dad pulling this book out, being like, you want to be a doctor? How about these poems by this modernist poet? <laughs> I mean, these stories by this early modernist American poet. So uh, it was sort of faded from that moment then. Yeah, I think... Um, in some strange way. Well, it's, the weird thing about books and reading is that you never know why things stick, you know? That's, that's what's so fascinating about this kind of mass hysteria over vampire stories. I mean, you can look and you can say, okay, blood, sex, you know... Eternal youth. Eternal youth. Or, or yeah, just... there's, there's some appealing things about that, but you never, you don't understand why so many people across uh, cultures, uh, yeah, and across cultures, love it. Same with Dan Brown. You know, it can't. You can't simply say this is about marketing. This is about sales. You know, there must be something there that works. <laughs> Dan Brown and vampires. I know. This is my nighttime reading. <laughs> <laughs> What's on your nightstand, John Freeman? <laughs> Oh, I I will come back and be fired. They're like, no. that's it. You are a lowbrow. No. Um, what's what's on my nightstand now? I, uh, I'm reading poems by James Wright, um, which I wonderful. Really love. Uh, I love his. What is what is the name of this poem? Autumn comes to something fairy Ohio, Martin's Ferry, Ohio. And it's about the start of football season yes. in this small town. It's so beautiful. We, we actually one of um, a, a writer sent that in as one of the the poems about um, for Fourth of July. There was a Fourth mm. of July living writers show, and mm. Charlie McLeod sent that in as his pick. It is. It's a beautiful, so evocative, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it makes and, you want to come back to Michigan in the fall, doesn't it, John Freeman? <laughs> Visit yes, us. <laughs> yes. Watch those football players gallop against each other. <laughs> That's that uh, line. It's just, oh, it's so good. Um, and so true. Yeah. There's something really, he's so in that, that world, but outside it at the same time. And the, the sort of... The writers. Yeah. Well, also just, no, I mean, I was thinking more about the football playing small town America and just the, the use of that kind of almost Shakespearean 
floweriness in the midst of this quite gritty atmosphere is what makes that poem so so beautiful. But but the writer is like a, being in it, but always apart as mm. well. Really, like the I'm the, in the studio, but not here at the same time. <laughs> your hologram yeah. self. I sent my hologram. That's, and how do you like with you? Thanks a lot. <laughs> You're trying to touch me now. I'm just air. It's true. John Freeman. Is he here or not? Um, but it must be interesting because you love books so much. You you now are at the helm of Granta. Um, and, and so you have a mission with that. You're also writing books. Mm. Um, like, is it just like you're, you're a reader? You're a writer? That's how you see yourself? and you, what, yeah. Or how do you see yourself, John Freeman? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I've always... I've, I've always felt like um, the, the boundary between being a reader and a writer is, is more fluid than we imagine. Because the, the neat thing about books, um, as opposed to sort of other forms of media,